As you'll soon discover, the theme in this story is efficiency. And in this episode, I interview five different people from all different walks of life, all real smart, busy people. With Chris, the producer, we record, he uploads files to Dropbox, and I get to my place. Yeah, I like to edit my place and get going. I got all the transcripts in front of me and maps of storytelling routes to my side. I print a picture of each main character and pin them on cardboard. I download the narrative, media clips, and interviews from Dropbox and listen to the 50 or so music cues Chris, the producer, and I discussed and are thinking of using. None of this is possible without all of us, the team, communicating through Dropbox. Efficiency. That'll be a theme in this episode. Wait, don't fast forward. I really want to keep the momentum going with our contributors. We have a show here about storytelling and history, and I really do think you, the listener, can become a part of our team. This isn't some ploy, but instead a chance for me to get your opinion and take on the stories that I tell. You just got to go to jenkspod.com slash contributors. I'll also be sending free t-shirts soon. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. What Really Happened is written and hosted by yours truly, the world's most flexible documentary filmmaker. Please let me know what you think on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Andrew Jenks. There's a great quote. Now we're really going off the reservation, but there, I think you'll like this. There's this great quote uh, by this uh, physician philosopher, Damasio, that says, we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that sometimes think, you know, I mean, and it's really true. Almost four years ago, I was at the Los Angeles premiere for a documentary I directed titled It's Not Over. I was walking down the red carpet with Rihanna. There were obviously dozens and dozens of cameras and media outlets from around the world. Endless flashes, photographers yelling, look this way, look that way, and publicists holding their five cell phones, trying their best to manage the chaos. Everyone wanted that perfect picture, that perfect soundbite from Rihanna. All eyes were on the global superstar. I was busy thinking about a disturbing haircut I had just gotten and was preparing for friends to begin texting me about the colossal error in judgment. Rihanna and I had been in Barbados together. There's a sentence you can never take away from me. We spent time on a local beach with a group of talented young kids who were part of a nonprofit which provided a better education for young people in their home country. We all danced, including myself, on a nearby beach. The kids did a real cute performance for Rihanna, and I was also able to visit a local orphanage where kids showed me their artwork and replayed some soccer. The film was about HIV and AIDS and how, despite some narratives, the disease remains a crisis around the world. Nearly 40 million people are HIV positive, and in countries like South Africa, one place where I spent time and filmed in a township, nearly 400 people die of an AIDS-related illness each day. My small and scrappy documentary crew had also traveled and filmed in Mumbai, India, and around the Midwest. More specifically, I was filming the lives of young people who were either HIV positive or whose lives were impacted by the epidemic. Filming took nearly a year. The documentary, to be honest with you, was tricky, and looking back on it, I could have done a better job. But that's not for now. Alongside Rihanna, I also walked down the carpet with two of the main people I had filmed, from India and Indiana, respectively. Both real heroes in a lot of ways. I then looked around, past the media, 
and saw in the distance some celebrities, oftentimes worshipped as heroes as well. Oh, damn, is that the guy from the West Wing? Oh, and there's Miley Cyrus. She's got popcorn and is picking out a seat to watch the movie. Now, what I haven't told you is who financed the film. It was a lipstick company. Well, it's not totally fair. A cosmetics company. MAC Cosmetics. For those who don't know, MAC Cosmetics is one of the top three makeup brands in the world, with an annual turnover of more than a billion dollars. Rihanna was there, both in Barbados and now at the LA premiere, because she had signed a one-year deal to be the face of MAC Cosmetics' Viva Glam line. The Viva Glam lipstick line is world-renowned and incredibly impressive. They raise awareness and a ton of money for HIV and AIDS. 100% of all purchases of any Viva Glam product goes towards the MAC AIDS Fund. Each year, MAC partners with a new spokesperson for Viva Glam. Lady Gaga, Christina Aguilera, Elton John, and a long list of household names have all been the face of Viva Glam since it started about 25 years ago. Part of the agreement for Rihanna, I assume, was to take part in the film I was making in whatever capacity she could, whether filming ancillary footage while in Barbados or talking about the impact of HIV and AIDS with young people. When Riri tweeted to the world about the film's premiere, well, people definitely took notice. On this premiere night, I was reminded of what I had thought since I first met with different folks at MAC Cosmetics. Well, this feels different. In the past, HBO, ESPN, MTV had financed or acquired my work, but what was a brand doing financing a feature documentary on HIV and AIDS? Why were they giving me such creative control? How strange. But brands attempting to produce original content was and remains a growing trend. There are countless examples. On April 4th, 2017, Kendall Jenner, a very famous model, part of the Kardashian family, and a financially successful entrepreneur in her own right, premiered a short film. The short film, to be clear, is not a documentary, but scripted, featuring Kendall in the midst of a protest. I assume in the days leading up to the release of this short film, Pepsi felt pretty good. It was going to premiere on YouTube. Here was this global celebrity showing she cared about the world, taking part in a march, all the while enjoying Pepsi. But then something happened. Everyone saw the commercial and they couldn't believe it. Yes, in this short film, Kendall, playing herself, joins a protest, but nobody knew what the protest was even for. Also, the protest didn't look like a protest as much as a Bollywood dance scene. Then the climax really had people upset. Did Kendall Jenner just give a can of Pepsi to a police officer, and that all of a sudden solved whatever tension there was? Finally, since when is a protest made up of such a perfectly diverse group of gorgeous people? The Rihanna story was to obviously brag that I was on a red carpet and a beach with Rihanna, but it was also to show how brands do this sort of thing all the time, and it can produce good content, spread hopeful messages, and raise money which impacts the lives of people around the world. But can you imagine if Rihanna put lipstick on a sick person and suddenly that seemed to make a huge difference? Why did Kendall sign up for this? Why did Pepsi think this was a good idea? What really happened? It's January 2017. 
the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. People are there to watch movies, party, do business, and ski. Although mountains had been devoid of snow in late 2016, by the time Sundance rolled around, it picked up. During the 10-day festival, they got just over 20 inches of snow. All sorts of celebrities were there. Mary J. Blige, Kristen Stewart, Jay-Z, Keanu Reeves, and probably a bunch of YouTube stars that are making more money than anyone. Sundance has grown through the years into much more than a film festival. Sure, you have your expected players, the streaming services, Netflix, Amazon. I couldn't find in my research if Hulu was there, but I assume so. You also have Sony Picture Classics, IFC Films, CNN Films, HBO, Showtime, and a slew of other distributors watching and strategizing. Which of these films will be a hit? Or at least a critical darling? Where is the next Winter's Bone, Hoop Dreams, Blair Witch Project, or Napoleon Dynamite? The reason I tend not to go to Sundance, other than my documentaries getting rejected, still not over Dream Killer not getting in, is that it is one big party. Party at night, partying during the day, partying before movies, after movies, parties on the slopes. During the 2017 festival, there was a series of parties at what was called the Collaborators League Studio. I looked through photos of who was there and there was some serious bigwigs. This included one of the main characters in our story, Brad Jakeman. Brad Jakeman is Australian, 6'2", almost 50 years old, and lives in LA, New York City, and Bridgehampton, when not flying around the world. He's also very articulate. Brad also loves expressions. The keyboard warriors who come out, and what I also call the marketer's conundrum, in that examples of what I call brandivism. In some ways, picture Brad Jakeman as a modern-day Mad Men character. He's in the advertising business. Although he's not a shark, I could almost see him on Shark Tank. Or like a toned-down Gordon Ramsay, the angry chef dude on Fox. Brad, like the characters in Mad Men, cares about what he wears. Look at any picture of him, and he usually is sporting a trendy outfit. A gray, double-breasted suit. A turtleneck and perfectly fit plaid blazer. A navy suit with checkered pink button-down and pink satin tie to match. I've never harped on somebody's looks before, much less somebody I haven't met, but if you take anything out of this, it's that Brad Jakeman is a detailed guy. And he's not just dressed smart, he is smart. Really, really smart. In college, he majored in mass communications and psychology. Nice and dangerous combo. Brad Jakeman was Pepsi's global beverage group president. To be clear, when I talk about Pepsi, the brand in this episode, I'm talking about what Brad was responsible for, which isn't just Pepsi, but 10 of PepsiCo's $22 billion brands. And he has had a storied career. He's won a lot of awards. It would take me a while to go through them all. There's like more than 200. Either the advertising world gives out a ton of awards, Brad is a genius, or maybe both. Advertising Age named Brad one of America's top 50 marketers. In 2015, Ad Club of New York anointed him as Advertising Person of the Year. Ad Week included him in the top five of the most indispensable executives in tech, media, and marketing for two years in a row. Anyway, Brilliant Brad was trying to mix things up in the ad business. And the ad business seems to have needed it. The 30-second commercial was dying. To provide some context, 
A Variety article, The Hollywood Trade Magazine, wrote in 2017, In recent years, digital players have had an increasingly large role at Sundance and other film festivals and gatherings, but it's rare to see a food and beverage company looking to make acquisitions. However, as consumers watch more and more television on DVRs or on their computers, television advertising has become less effective. That's left companies like Pepsi looking for novel ways to reach customers. Moreover, the cost of making a film or buying a completed one is a relative dip in the bucket compared to the $2 million to $6 million it routinely sets companies back to film a television spot. And so Brad and his team wanted to start creating content themselves, not unlike what Red Bull had been up to. So Pepsi, led by Brad, started an in-house production company and studio called The Creators League. They'd make original content with the likes of Scooter Braun, T.I., and Kendall Jenner. Brad and his team were interested in TV shows, films, digital programming, you name it. As he put it at the time, we're taking a really broad view of how brands are built now. We're creating content consumers want to seek out rather than screen out. And so the production arm of Pepsi partnered with Sundance and set up what they called the Collaborators League Studio. Here they hosted exclusive parties, networking opportunities, high-profile industry events, including the official Sundance Women's and Fellows Breakfast. This Variety article added, nor do the films or shows in question have to include a hard sell for soft drinks. Give Me Future, a documentary Pepsi had helped finance, for example, shows billboards for Pepsi in the background of concert scenes, but it doesn't push the connection. Pepsi says there is no mandate that the films they make or acquire need to have its products or signage featured in them. The idea is that by backing these films, shows, and other types of content, the residual glow will transfer to Pepsi, making their foods and beverages seem younger, hipper, and more fun. This reminded me of MAC Cosmetics and Viva Glam. Something I was shocked by is you could watch the film, It's Not Over, and not know that MAC Cosmetics had anything to do with it. It was intended for their younger clientele to see a film that aligned with their brand values. It was a film that they could point to, in addition to all of the money they gave, as a way to say that they were helping the world, and not even overtly looking for credit. At this point in time, at Sundance, it's likely Brad and his team were already working on, or maybe even putting the finishing touches on a new short film titled Live For Now, also known as Live For Now Moments Anthem. Pepsi called it a short film, and one can debate the merits of this, but for the intentions of this story and also following what most people both in and out of the business have considered it, I'll call it a commercial. Either way, it'd be starring Kendall Jenner. It was set to premiere on April 4th, 2017. The commercial was part of the Live For Now campaign that Pepsi first began on a global scale five years prior in 2012. A CNBC article wrote that the campaign, quote, aims at reflecting today's millennial generation and what living for now looks like. Nicki Minaj was the face of the first campaign, and it matched with other pop culture phenoms who had endorsed Pepsi through the years. Michael Jackson, Britney Spears, Beyonce, to name a few. The Live For Now commercial would fall in line with what Brad and Pepsi had been talking about at Sundance, and it was going to premiere on YouTube. 
At the Met Gala last year, People magazine wrote, the red carpet was packed with over 130 celebrities all decked out in their heavenly bodies best. The article continued, Kendall Jenner had something blocking her shot, a security guard. Jenner was seen politely shoving the security guard. It was kind of brilliant. People magazine loved it. These are the sorts of details I end up reading about when researching. Some articles on the dynamics of advertising, others on random Jenner versus security guard Met Gala dual stuff. Parts of her life that I scoff at, but shouldn't because it's just her life. Now, although I definitely don't need actual security guards, at least not at the Met, I do have Ring at my place. Ring is the company that makes those smart video doorbells, so when I'm off interviewing whomever, I can still see on my phone HD video of what's going on and talk with anyone at the front door, UPS guy, Larry, my neighbor, what's up, Larry, and maybe a girlfriend one day so eager to see me, she just has to get to my place early. As a listener of what really happened, this is the important part, you have a special offer on a Ring starter kit available now. With a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam, the starter kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. Just go to ring.com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened. That's ring.com slash W-R-H. Now, before I get into the commercial, some context. About seven months before the Sundance Film Festival, on July 9th, 2016, there was a protest in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. People from around the country, likely the world, came to the rally. Two black men, Alton Sterling from Baton Rouge and Philando Castile from Minnesota, had been victims of deadly police force on two consecutive days. One of these people at the rally was Aisha Evans. After watching what had been happening in the news, she traveled from her hometown in Pennsylvania and arrived in Louisiana. It was her first protest. And then it happened. She saw armed police in a line moving forward on the street. Aisha walked towards them. She also, and this added to the visual juxtaposition that struck so many, was wearing a flowing dress and had her arms crossed. Two officers then ran towards her, grabbed her, and arrested her. Many, regardless of your political beliefs, saw it as a representation of a peaceful protest and the rights people from all walks of life were standing up for as they continued to see minorities in the news being killed by police. I didn't know this, but it turns out a photographer from Reuters happened to see it all going down and captured the moment in one photo. This photo, the moment of Aisha standing in front of the police, has been titled, Taking a Stand in Baton Rouge. Many have compared it to the historic photo of Tank Man during the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Nine months after taking a stand in Baton Rouge, Pepsi released their new commercial. If you haven't seen the commercial or forgot exactly what goes on, here's my quick synopsis of the two-minute and 40-second advertisement. The first shot is of a glistening blue soda can popping open. You can see enough of the can to know it's the Pepsi logo. The noise of that can opening is the only time we hear anything other than the catchy soundtrack, Skip Marley's song, Lions. Then there's a quick series of epic and cinematic aerial shots of a musician playing the cello on a rooftop in some unidentified city. If you're just looking at the visuals, you know this is going to feel big. The music going at a fast tempo 
informs you there's going to be some action. By the 10 second mark, you see quick shots of a protest. Nothing is violent or even slightly rowdy, just young people marching, holding up signs, and presumably chanting something. We then see a young woman who appears to be Middle Eastern and wearing a hijab. She's in a professional art studio, analyzing her own work, looking at a range of different photo prints. She appears frustrated. Then, as we hit the 30-second mark, Kendall Jenner. She's in the midst of a modeling shoot and wearing a blonde wig. She's normally a brunette. We can see the protest in the backdrop. Kendall notices what's going on and has a momentary look of concern. The commercial cuts back and forth from the cellist, who's Asian, to Jenner, who, by the way, is white, to the photographer, and then there is the protest, which is peppered in throughout. When the cellist sips a Pepsi, he seems galvanized to look at what's going on in the street. It's the protest. He's intrigued. Elsewhere, but likely nearby, the photographer has an epiphany and grabs her camera. Jenner, still in the midst of her photo shoot, makes eye contact with the Asian cellist, who is now part of the march, and follows him. She grabs a Pepsi on the way. She also takes off her wig and hands it off to a person we'll mention a bit later on. It's not until the 1 minute and 43 second mark that we see police are on the scene. They've formed a line. They aren't in riot gear, but more traditional uniform and police caps. Regardless, this could become a disaster. Kendall walks towards the police. A la Aisha from Baton Rouge, Kendall doesn't appear particularly threatening as she approaches the police. As she gets closer to the officers, she grabs a Pepsi from a gorgeous-looking bucket of ice. She hands it to what friends have told me would be considered a pretty good-looking officer. With 30 seconds left, we have a tight shot of the photographer. With Aisha, that photographer from Reuters happened to be in the right place with the right timing and his own skills. In this commercial, this happens as well, to our formerly down-and-out photographer. She now sees what's unraveling and click. She captures the moment the officer takes a sip. And once he does, the protest turns into a bit more of a party. The group jumps in excitement. They raise their hands. The multicultural vibe continues. We see a blonde woman followed by an Asian man, followed by the Middle Eastern photographer hugging someone over the photo she captured, and then Jenner high-fiving others around her. The officer then looks at a fellow officer and gives a face to suggest, hey, that was pretty cool. One more shot of Kendall celebrating, followed by the group walking together, and bam, it's over, as the logo and tagline fade in. Pepsi. Live bolder, live louder, live for now. When it premiered, people went crazy. For all of the wrong reasons. The reaction to the Pepsi ad was quick and almost all negative. I don't even know if it was almost all negative. It might have been all negative. L. Hearns, the executive director of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute and formerly an organizer for Black Lives Matter, said the ad, quote, plays down the sacrifices people have historically taken in utilizing protests. No one is finding joy from Pepsi at a protest. That's just not the reality of our lives. That's not what it looks like to take bold action. Now, to be clear, Pepsi has always maintained that while they realize taking a stand in Baton Rouge is very similar, that it wasn't meant to be some sort of fictionalized version of that. But perception is everything. People didn't really buy that. And regardless, there was plenty in the ad that people were not happy about. 
Writer Megan McKenna, I think, did a good job of explaining why the criticism was universal, saying, Conservatives are angry Pepsi is quote-unquote supporting Black Lives Matter, and liberals are critical of the ad for trivializing the movement's importance. This whole idea of using a privileged white model and a soft drink sold by a massive corporate conglomerate to create peace between activists and law enforcement also isn't really adding up for people. Either way, Pepsi is co-opting a movement of political resistance, implying that a can of Pepsi can unite protesters and police isn't just a stretch. It's insulting to those who have lost their lives to police brutality. Protests aren't just about peace and unity. They're about fighting for justice. As documented by a Villanova case study, social media erupted. Comedian Margaret Cho tweeted, If this Pepsi ad is the choice of a new generation, I'm going to need that generation to turn in its badge. Beloved writer and director Judd Apatow tweeted, Could spend the rest of my life trying and not even come close to making something as funny as this Pepsi ad. Stephen Colbert added, This Pepsi ad is so unrealistic, those protesters would have been Dr. Pepper sprayed. Added at Trayvon Free, The Kendall Jenner Pepsi fiasco is a perfect example of what happens when there's no black people in the room when decisions are being made. Sean Kent said the worst part of the Pepsi commercial is when Kendall decides to protest racism by making a black woman hold her wig. Scott Ludlam tweeted, Who else is reminded of Dr. Martin Luther King's famously resonant I have a Pepsi speech? Kumail Nanjiani added, So we should just give Putin and Assad and Trump a can of Pepsi and everything will be fine? There were countless photos of protesters through the years getting severely beaten with a caption that always said some version of, wait, don't beat me, I have a Pepsi on the way. Even Martin Luther King's daughter perhaps had the most terse comment with, if only daddy knew about the power of Pepsi. The media went berserk. One of the most famous people in the world and one of the most famous brands in the world screwed up? Yup. Although that's not really news, right? So it's not like, uh, nope, wait a second. Pepsi ad features Kendall Jenner and it's causing a controversy online. The ad- we talk on the show a lot about if they get you talking about it, is that a success? In this case, I, no I, I think it seems to be a, a miss. We've never seen such a fast and furious response yeah. to this. And things are controversial. Sure. We're a polarized nation. Usually there's two sides of this, not in this story. This trying to solve a social issue, issue with mm-hmm. soda. It strongly resembles the moment Black Lives Matter protester Aisha Evans was arrested. I've been studying commercials for 30 years. Kendall's Pepsi ad is legitimately the worst one I've ever seen. Where Pepsi was saying, we need to be more relevant. Young people aren't drinking enough soda. They're drinking pomegranate juice and sports juices and sports drinks. Let's get relevant. So people went back and they looked at their focus group interviews. They looked at their bar graphs about you know, the various metrics of what young people want. And they said, OK, they, you know, they're more tolerant of you know, the different races and you know, they're more socially active. right? Then they got involved and they like protests. So let's throw some protests in. They like celebrity. Let's throw some of that in. And they like the Kardashians and Kendall Jenner. Let's throw her in. When you put that, you know, those ingredients all sound fine together, kind of like pepperoni and Snickers and grapes. You put that all in a pot, doesn't taste very good. And that's that what you have. Very good the way that's you what you have here. You know, again, it was created in some Frankenstein lab of advertising, and this is what mm. you ended up with. And late night hosts like Stephen Colbert couldn't help themselves. We have a deeply divided nation, but today it seems like everyone has come together 
to join the protest against the new protest ad from Pepsi. So far, we don't know what has caused all of America's hot extras to take to the streets. (laughs) But I'm guessing it's a protest for Attractive Lives Matter. (laughs) And live for now, especially if you're Pepsi's marketing department, because I don't think you guys are going to be there for long. DeRay McKesson is an American civil rights activist, podcaster, and former school administrator. He's also the author of On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, a memoir about his life and time as a Black Lives Matter organizer. I saw him the other day in the lobby at my studio and thought he'd be a good guy to talk to about this. Yeah, it was just a reminder of how um, how woefully ignorant it was. It was like, how do you have a protesting in the middle of protests all across the country be Kendall just standing there like it's fun and fun and dancing outside. Like that's, it was a mockery of what the protests were. And, you know, you think about all the people that had to green light that, all the people that like had to film it and like participate in it and score the music. And, and it was like, nobody, nobody said this wasn't a good idea. Like that was just, that was actually the shocking part of it. DeRay added, what was really troubling about the ad uh, in addition was that it was selling a product, right? So like not only did it mock the the protests and the seriousness of why people were in the street, but it did it in the name of like a soda. Dr. Charles Ray Taylor is a senior research fellow and professor of marketing at the Villanova University School of Business and at the Center for Marketing and Consumer Insights. He's written for every major trade publication in the advertising and marketing world, received several awards for his work, and served as a Fulbright senior specialist and has taught courses in Germany, Korea, Austria, China, and the Czech Republic. The officers in this ad don't look very fierce. You know what I mean? And I'm sure Pepsi was doing that to try to make make sure they could get a, a message of unity across. And the protesters were carrying like generic signs saying peace and love and, and stuff like that. But it, it didn't really look like a realistic protest. Brandwatch, a social media monitoring company, reported that Pepsi's day over day social mentions increased from April 3rd to April 5th by an astronomical 21,675%. Not only that, but women and men contributed to the conversation at nearly the same rate. And finally, of course, SNL got in on the action. The sketch purports to be following the director, or at least the person whose idea this was, on the massive set. Before shooting a scene, the director, whose idea it was, gets a call from his sister. Carrie, hey, sorry, I can't super talk right now. I'm on the set of this huge Pepsi commercial I'm doing. I know, right? It was like completely my idea, and now they're doing it. It's, it's an homage to uh, the resistance. There's this huge protest in the street, reminiscent of Black Lives Matter. And, so and then marching. Kendall Jenner walks so in, and she, walks and she hands him a Pepsi. And then that Pepsi brings everybody together. <laughs> I mean, isn't that like the best ad ever? In response, his sister is speechless. Sort of tone deaf. All right, guys, three minutes away. Three minutes. I think maybe you just kind of don't get it. Is is Doug there? He then tries pitching it to his sister's husband. Dougie Fresh, what's up? Uh, Hey, I just want to run this Pepsi commercial by you that I'm doing. Uh, Make sure you're loving it as much as I am. The whole thing is sort of a celebration. People of every single culture come together. Uh huh. (laughs) 
He then tries pitching it to somebody else. Right, people, 60 seconds till we roll on this man's singular vision. Ah, yes. Hey, man, could you maybe put a, a neighbor on the phone? Like a, a black one? Yeah, yeah, hey, we're shooting a little Pepsi commercial over here. Just want to run by you and get your opinion on it. Okay, great. So the whole thing is sort of an homage to the Black Lives Matter move. Don't even touch it. <laughs> It'd be insane to touch it. Right, okay. If you read through the trade magazines and interviews with industry insiders, this SNL character was, in so many ways, inspired by Brad Jakeman, our efficient, smart, well-dressed Aussie. Sure, he didn't direct this, but he was the guy taking the blame. Article after article points the finger at him. So I emailed Brad. Would he come on and explain? I was surprised. He emailed back. This may sound asinine, but as I was researching Brad, interviews online, speeches at conferences, I realized this guy had some serious fashion. I honestly thought, man, like, I guess I can hang, but nobody's going to be like, yo, Jenks, you're really stylish. As David Ogilvie once said, on the average, five times as many people read the headlines as read the body copy. So anyway, I don't know if that totally added up, but Brad is making a good impression the second he starts talking to a client, to an audience, or in an interview. So I thought, you know what? I have a speaking gig coming up. I got to dress more like an adult. So I easily signed up for Stitch Fix. They're partners of the podcast and an online personal shopping service. In fact, if you go to stitchfix.com slash WRH, as in what really happened, and tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item, They'll pair you with your very own personal stylist who will handpick items to send right to your door. Signing up is really easy. I know I'm looking forward to my new speaking gig outfit. Shipping exchanges and returns are always free. Get started now at stitchfix.com WRH, and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all items in your box. That's stitchfix.com WRH to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash WRH. Brad Jakeman has been asked about this ad quite a bit. His answer is pretty simple. In November 2017, he was interviewed at the Ad Age Next Conference. He said of the commercial, It was the most um, gut-wrenching experience of my career. It seems the methods used to judge the commercial focused more on whether the ad would sell product, which makes sense, opposed to how the general public may respond to the broader societal message. The first thing I learned is that the tools by which uh, we uh, research communications are woefully inadequate, by and large, um, given the type of content that we're now publishing. And here's what I mean by that. Number one, they are all of the marketing research tools tend to be oriented around the commercial impact of your advertising. So they ask purchase intent and branding and so on. Very little focuses on um, what is the social impact going to be amongst different audiences. He also added, you're often in those situations um, most interested in what the consumer says, you're, you're the consumer that you're targeting. In other words, regardless of what Pepsi fans thought, once high-profile, influential individuals, particularly on social media, 
saw the ad, it was game over. Not only that, but in my research, the response, particularly on Twitter, came from all sides. It was people integral in Black Lives Matter, like DeRay, to people who had a special place in their heart on the issue, like Martin Luther King's daughter. Just about every comedian, Colbert, Apatow, you name it, came tweeting. Even commercial directors like Joseph Kahn. He went on a Twitter rant. Here's my reaction to the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. All in caps, no, this cannot be happening. He continued, Kendall Jenner modeling in front of a protest and then giving a cop a Pepsi? Caps locks again. Who the fuck thought of this? The ad world just ended itself. Pack it up, people. Our industry is done. I've been studying commercials for 30 years. Kendall's Pepsi ad is legitimately the worst one I've ever seen. I reached out to Joseph and, a bit suspiciously, albeit respectfully, he said he could no longer talk about the commercial. Huh. All of these people have huge followings in very different fields, so the response was this perfect storm. But... Very rarely are the sort of issues that we face come from your loyalists. They tend to come from kind of other stakeholders in society and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and traditional research methodologies typically don't address that. To Brad's credit, he emailed me back pretty quickly. Usually people who are involved in a controversy don't reply to me or just say no thanks. For instance, Kendall in this case politely declined. In other cases, like Dr. Phil, they just don't even respond. I'm still waiting to hear back from you, Doc. Brad didn't take Dr. Phil's route. He emailed me back, saying, I'd be happy at some point to join your podcast, but not on this topic. It's old news. Not only was it an ad that never ran, but it happened almost two years ago. It's a topic that's been well covered, and I think everyone has moved on. I don't see a big upside in going back to a two-year-old topic when as marketers, we should be striving to look forward. I thought Brad's take was fair, I don't know if I'd call it old news, but he has talked about the mistake quite a bit, and I don't blame a guy for wanting to move forward. Also, it's true, the ad only ever ran on YouTube and was taken down the next day. It only remains on YouTube on channels that don't actually have the rights to the video. Then again, regardless of my views, I've never been hit and arrested at a protest. I've never had a family member unnecessarily killed by anyone from a gang member to the police. I'm a white guy living in Manhattan, so just for some context there. But rather than emailing back and thanking him for considering, I thought, well, maybe this could work. So I responded, I totally get it if you don't want to come on, but actually agree with much of your email response. I think there is a much larger and more interesting conversation to have about marketing and ways to strive to move forward. It'd be great to hear this from you. So Brad agreed to come on the podcast after all. And the moment I began talking to him, I was reminded that he's a details guy, a man of precision and efficiency. He had wanted to meet in person, but it didn't work out. Oh, it's a nightmare today. I don't know what's going on in the city. Every, I think it's the tree lighting or something. It took me like an hour and a half from Teterboro, which is normally a 15-minute ride. Within the first minute of the conversation, we were already getting down to business. Don't forget... We're talking about Brad Jakeman here. Efficiency. But one of the things I took to most in in your email to me was you said more and more consumers want to know not what the company makes, but what makes the company 
I know what you mean by that. But my question is, why do you think that has, I, I would think, changed? Why do more and more consumers want to know what makes the company? Look, I'm in answer to that question, I'm going to use probably the most overused word in uh, marketing, but I can't think of a, a, a better or, word right now. Organic? Is it going to be organic? No, it's ah. not. You have another guess. Authentic. Uh, that's the one. Yes. Yeah. All right. But uh, it is that consumers want, we live in a world of much greater transparency and requirements for transparency across the board um, in almost every category are getting uh, greater and greater from a, from a consumer point of view. And it um, translates into uh, desire by consumers to do business with brands that share their values. And they want to understand um, what makes the company. Um, and in some instances, they want to double click and understand what makes the people behind the company. Um, and it used to be, say, 10 years ago, that what consumers were checking for is that you weren't doing any harm, hmm. that your company was kind of a good corporate citizen and it didn't do any harm. Now, uh, the bar is much higher than that. They actually expect you to be doing good in some way. They expect um, particularly big brands and big companies to actually make a net positive impact on society. And that's what they look for. And all else being equal, they will gravitate to brands that do that over brands that don't. Clearly, this was and remains true of Pepsi. Their intent was to show a celebrity protesting with their fellow citizens. But the way they portrayed this in the commercial was a big problem, which we'll get to. But Pepsi wasn't an outlier in what Brad calls brandivism. Brandivism seems fairly self-explanatory. Brands these days must demonstrate their own form of activism. I was reminded of my conversation with the much-respected professor from Villanova, Dr. Charles Ray Taylor. Among the many studies he's conducted, such as the Kendall Jenner and Pepsi case, Professor Taylor is an expert on Super Bowl commercials. It was remarkable last year how many of the ads compared to historical levels built in some type of social responsibility appeal. You know, everything from Budweiser with hurricane relief to Stella Artois with giving water to the poor, you know, Verizon with helping communities during disasters. I, you know, Toyota, Toyota and Hyundai both did stuff where they were showing that they were helping the handicapped or disadvantaged. So we're, we're, we're clearly seeing a trend towards that. And so this had me thinking, well, yeah, why didn't Pepsi go for a commercial to show brandivism that wouldn't be controversial, just like those other advertisements? As it turns out, it was time to play some inside baseball. The hilarious Jim Gaffigan was one of many people who got in on the Twitter action when that commercial first popped up on YouTube. In his tweet, he pretends to be the advertising guy who's talking to the Pepsi executive before the agency is fired. But you said you wanted social media to talk about Pepsi. As Gaffigan and many others have pointed out, the ad certainly got people talking about Pepsi. But as it turns out, Jim's tweet was actually based on an advertising model that Pepsi doesn't use. To be clear, that obviously doesn't matter for Jim's tweet, 
but I thought it was a nice entry point into this portion of our story. As you may have realized at this point, an agency was not in charge of that advertisement. In fact, an agency wasn't even involved. Traditionally, this is how commercials are made. Or if you were to look at my documentary, not to keep talking about it, it's not over, that Mac Cosmetics financed, there was an agency, now really a media company, the prestigious Pray Tell Agency, that served as an intermediary. One of the agency's clients was Mac, and they were tasked with finding someone like me to deliver a movie for Mac Cosmetics and the Mac Aids Fund. In the case of this commercial, Pepsi didn't hire an ad agency. I spoke with Ed Castillo. Ed is the former chief strategy officer of TBWA, Chiat, Day NY, and Arnold Worldwide. And he's a leading brand strategist and current owner of Brand Disposition, Inc. His career highlights include leading the strategy for the What Happens Here Stays Here campaign for the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, and was named Brand Week's Grand Marketer of the Year in 2004. This is the most important thing to know, if, if, and you may have come across this in your research, and if you haven't, this is going to, this may be the central idea in, in this um, investigation, which is that ad was not made by an advertising agency. And so, um, you know, advertising is in rough shape, uh, more now even than then. Advertising has been getting, uh, uh, there's competition coming from traditional consultancies like Deloitte and Accenture that are taking, especially with digital transformation, taking a lot of business away from traditional agencies. Um, But there's also work moving in-house. And the assumption is in-house, we can do it faster with more agility uh, and more control. And that's the important piece because there's there's usually a healthy, sometimes unhealthy, but sometimes healthy tension between an ad agency and the marketer, right? They're, it's it's important that, that they come from, that their offices look different and they're from different walks of life. And one will tend to lean into culture more, the ad guys, given, let to their own devices, they're more artistic and would, would make a, a wholesale cultural argument, maybe showing the product. And left to their own devices, the marketer only wants to talk about the the specs of their product, right. you know, uh, to to the uh, to the exclusion of culture usually. Right. So when you bring those forces together and and that and that tension is managed, great advertising can emerge. Huh. Um, so the reason I mentioned checks this, almost. it's almost a checks and balances situation. Looking back on the documentary I made for Mac Cosmetics, I've thought about outside of just the agency. Who was in charge at Viva Glam? This was Nancy Mann, Global Executive Director of the Mac AIDS Fund. The thing is, Nancy knew this topic, the HIV and AIDS epidemic, as well as anyone. She was formerly the president of God's Love Redeliver, the nation's oldest and largest provider of life-sustaining nutritional support services for people living with HIV AIDS, cancer, and other serious illnesses. In 2011, she was appointed as the chair of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS. She provided advice and recommendations to people like the President of the United States. The point is, even without an ad agency, Nancy would have definitely been able to tell if there was anything in the movie that was disrespectful to the HIV AIDS community. Did Pepsi have a Black Lives Matter or some sort of expert on the condition of police brutality protests on hand? They're equivalent to a Nancy overseeing all of this? It doesn't seem like it. Brad 
Being at Sundance matters in our story for a simple reason. He was proud and remains proud to break up the advertising industry. He preferred working directly with creative people, filmmakers, and other artists. It felt like a more efficient and practical path moving forward. When I first started in this business, kind of 25 years ago, for a brand like Pepsi or a brand like um, Dove or a brand like Nike, those brands had to produce about five or six pieces of major marketing content a year. Um, and they had a budget of around, from a production point of view, a unit cost of anywhere from a million dollars plus. And each one of those took about six to eight months to produce from start to finish. Now, um, we live in a world where five or six pieces of content has become 500 or 600 pieces of content. The unit cost, because marketing budgets um, have not exponentially increased during this time. So the unit cost is not a million dollars plus now. It's, it's between $10,000 and $100,000 in most instances. And the time that takes, if you work on a brand that has some connection to pop culture and needs to respond to pop culture, is not kind of five to eight months. It's, in some instances, five to eight hours. And what that has meant is that the entire infrastructure for producing content um, has to change. And the historical infrastructure used to produce content, i.e. the traditional agency model, has not kept pace with those changes. And so clients are therefore um, looking more and more to other um, sources of content um, creation. And there used to be another kind of saying in the business when I first started, which was, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have it great. Choose two. Well, now, clients want all three, and clients need all three. And there has to be um, now new new ways that clients are producing content. Some are using the traditional agency model. I would say less, um, fewer and fewer clients are doing only that now. Um, some clients are insourcing. Ed Castillo, the marketing guru, said Brad's approach ruffled feathers. On reflection, it's interesting that the industry, the advertising industry, which might have been a little more sympathetic or come to the aid of one of their fallen brothers when content was put in the world that was, and this was egregious, like that. But the fact, it was totally magnified. The reaction of the advertising community yeah. was completely magnified by the fact that this guy who had built his agency in-house and kind of dismissed uh, traditional agencies developed this work. They were all too happy to point out uh, the failings of, 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 of that spot. That's so interesting. And it's kind of, yeah, so, so for, as an industry, as, as a member of that industry, it was, it was palpable. I reread that New York Times article, which was in their business section, from the day after that commercial first premiered on YouTube. In between commas, the New York Times even makes a point that many outside of the business or ad world would think is just a random piece of additional information. It read, in a statement on Tuesday, Pepsi at first said the ad, which was produced by an in-house studio, captures the spirit and actions of those people that jump into every moment. 
In between commas, the New York Times was saying what many in the advertising community were also saying. For better or worse, and in this case worse, the commercial was produced entirely in-house. Now, remember when I said the response was negative across the board in a variety of fields, people integral in the movement like DeRay or Martin Luther King's daughter, to comedians like Colbert, to even people who direct commercials like Joseph Kahn? There's one group I failed to mention, and that was the actual marketing and advertising industry itself, which reacted to the commercial for a reason unlike everyone else I just mentioned, a reason that had nothing to do with the actual content of the ad, but instead a particular person, our main character. Ed Castillo said, In the past, he was very proud of taking work internally and kind of pointing the finger at uh, you know, agency. And I, again, I, I don't remember the details, but I, I, I recall him being a little dismissive of the way agencies were maybe expensive or slow or hard to corral. And so he brings it in-house, and this happens. Around October of 2015 is likely one of those times Brad was pointing his finger. An Adweek article reported the following. One of the more interesting stories to come out of the 2015 event concerns a Wednesday presentation by Pepsi's Brad Jakeman, who is president of the company's Global Beverage Group. It was a very contentious, even combative speech, and it made him the ANA's top influencer for the week on the social media channels. Now, sorry for the quick sidebar here, but I wanted to check out what this meant. What does being ANA's top influencer mean? Essentially, it is an attempt to document which person or company on social media was getting the most buzz at the week-long conference. Brad was the top influencer, as Adweek had reported, but what I couldn't believe He beat out the social media handles of other companies, Harley-Davidson, Lyft, AdAge itself, which was holding the event, and, wait for it, Brad's own company, Pepsi. Anyway, the article continued, in short, Brad thinks agencies aren't pulling their weight and that they need to either catch up with the current trends or get dumped. But it's important to note what Brad also said during the speech, which was, I'm sick and tired as a client of sitting in agency meetings with a whole bunch of white, straight males talking to me about how we are going to sell our brands that are bought 85% by women. Innovation and disruption does not come from homogeneous groups of people. What's interesting to me is that it's not like Brad is some sheltered, hermetic, I love that word, hermetic, jet-setting ad man. Brad's been an advocate for changing the world for the better for a long, long time in big ways. You might remember those commercials about how love has no labels. Look it up on YouTube. It's pretty cool. And although you may think they have a cheesy message showing how we are all at the end of the day, the same had got me thinking in the best way. I even went downtown one day to meet with the ad council who produced the campaign to pitch them a series I wanted to do on a friend of mine who has autism. Nonetheless, Brad was on their board for over three years. Three months ago, he became a board member of Reporters Without Borders, the international nonprofit, non governmental organization which advocates on issues relating to freedom of information and freedom of the press. Former Pepsi executive Carla Hassan said in an email interview once that Brad's biggest contribution to Pepsi is, quote, his humanity and his commitment to diversity. I believe a story is happy or sad depending on when you decide to end it. And as always, that's vital in our story. It's time to get to what may have mattered more than anything. 
how Pepsi, how Brad Jakeman responded once the commercial was up on YouTube and the outrage commenced. One day later, one day later, Brad dropped the ad. It was gone. The company said in a statement the next day, Pepsi was trying to project a global message of unity, peace, and understanding. Clearly, we missed the mark and apologize. We did not intend to make light of any serious issue. We are pulling the content and halting any further rollout. This was picked up by mainstream and industry press and social media. Their statement also went on to apologize to Kendall Jenner. This is just my opinion, but it seems like this rapid response represents so much of what Brad seems to be about. If nothing else, he is a person of efficiency. The ad didn't work. It was terrible. They apologize. They move on. Professor Taylor told me, Pepsi handled the situation really quite well. Once it realized it made a mistake that was getting bad publicity, they issued a pretty unequivocal apology you know, indicating that their intent was not to offend anybody. And they, they even apologized to Kendall Jenner as, as well. I want to be clear here that in the following conversation with Brad, he's not talking about the Pepsi and Jenner ad specifically, but in many ways it does apply. So they want brands to stand for something and they want brands to actually make a difference around something. And also they want brands to hold a point of view on societal issues that affect uh, affect our communities. Now, that is um, a very tricky thing when you're in a commercial enterprise because in most instances, there are always two sides to every issue. And what brands need to do is kind of walk this fine line between um, making sure that they are genuinely and transparently um, committed to an issue, while at the same time making sure that they're not completely isolating um, and ignoring kind of the other side of the argument, if you like. And the risk in that, um, and it's not, it is a risk, but it's more a reality. When people say to me, and I'm spending a lot of time with brands that ask me the question, in doing that, in standing for this issue, how do we avoid some kind of negative backlash? Well, the answer to that question is in a lot of times you simply can't. So get ready for it. And it's how you, it's not how you avoid it. Obviously, you, you don't want to have some form of negative blowback, but the chances are that you are going to, and it's more to do with how you manage it than, than, uh, avoiding it altogether. Um, and, and look, and, and this is why I call it a conundrum because um, brands are increasingly faced with the choice of do I become irrelevant or do I become controversial? And um, that's a very hard choice to make because um, I personally would rather have my brand be controversial than have my brand be irrelevant. Um, but that's a very hard decision to take when you're in a big company with lots of different constituent bases and lots of different um, 
uh, external and internal stakeholders that you've got to um, take account of. This brings us back to the Villanova professor and expert, Professor Charles Ray Taylor, and his colleague, Professor Min Jung Koo. They wrote that case study on what happened in conjunction with the Samsung Marketing Academy and the Sung Kyung Management Institute. Although it's not apples to apples, Professor Taylor compared the controversy over the Pepsi advertisement with the United Airlines incident that happened that same week the Kendall ad ran. There's an amazing book about the habits we all have and how we get them in the first place. It's by Charles Duhigg and called The Power of Habit. In the book, he talks about the following. One day in the early 1900s, a prominent American businessman named Claude C. Hopkins was approached by an old friend with an amazing new creation, a minty, frothy toothpaste named Pepsodent that he promised was going to be huge. Hopkins at the time was one of the nation's most famous advertising executives. The book continues. Hopkins' greatest contribution would be helping to create a national toothbrushing habit. Before Pepsodent, almost no Americans brushed their teeth. A decade after Hopkins' advertising campaigns, pollsters found that toothbrushing had become a daily ritual for more than half the population. Everyone from Shirley Temple to Clark Gable eventually bragged about a Pepsodent smile. I think until working on this episode, I didn't realize or at least fully appreciate the cultural shifts people like Brad Jakeman, people like Claude C. Hopkins can have, and clearly both men want efficiency. I can't help but wonder, well, I don't know if I can't help but wonder, but I'd bet you Hopkins would be a fan of Quip. That's why I use the toothbrush company, one thing in life that is just kept simple and is really efficient. It's sensitive, sonic vibrations are gentle on my annoyingly sensitive gums, and there's a built-in timer for people who have a tough time focusing, with guiding pulses to remind me when to switch sides. The point is, I love Quip, and it's why they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash WRH right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened. It was April 9th, 2017. There was an overbooked United Airlines flight from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. There were four more passengers than seats. And the thing is, nobody would volunteer to give up their seat for money or credit. Nobody was willing to wait until the morning when the next flight was scheduled. So United Airlines had to pick four passengers who would have to get off the plane. One of these passengers refused to get up, so the man had to be removed. But it wasn't easy, and this is the part you may remember. He ended up having bruises, a bloody mouth, and got a concussion. People had their phones out, video was posted on YouTube, and remains there to this day. In fact, When I typed in United Airlines on YouTube, the first option that came up to fill in the rest of the search was United Airlines drags man off plane video. People couldn't believe it. According to Brandwatch, the social media monitoring company, the next day, there were more than 1.5 million social media hits. Online sentiment surrounding United went from 70% positive to one day later, 
10% positive. The CEO's first response to the incident sounded tone deaf to the images of the man's bloody face and the concussion. Then the CEO's second letter came out. It wasn't much better. In fact, according to Brandwatch, these first two statements actually intensified public anger over the incident. The third letter from United CEO finally called it a truly horrific event and that United took full responsibility. According to the case study, in the week following the incident, United stock price dropped 2.6%, resulting in a $570 million loss of market capitalization. The CEO was forced to quit. The passenger received a large settlement from United Airlines, and questions still linger about the long-term impact on the United brand. One more thing, and then we'll move on, but the study at Villanova also notes a compelling list of reasons it wasn't even United's fault in the first place. The flight in question was actually run by United Express, an affiliate not technically owned by United. The dragging of the passenger off the plane was done by airport police, not United staff. And for what it's worth, to provide some context, the CEO's three letters and his change in sentiment didn't happen over the course of a week or two weeks. It was just two days, maybe three days. It's not like it took forever. It shows just how quickly you have to respond to outrage. Professor Taylor summarized it all when he told me, The case in United where the, where the man got dragged off the plane, United issued a, a series of pretty hollow apologies that didn't come across to the public as sincere, uh, whereas Pepsi's, Pepsi's did. So I think once they realized that they made a mistake, I think they handled it really well. I began researching the effects the commercial had on Pepsi's bottom line. But as I was doing this, something kept coming up. What I found most surprising and interesting in my conversations with everyone, they all thought the Pepsi ad wasn't that far off from working. From my conversation with Professor Taylor, what role do you think the solving the situation played a role in it? And did you guys ever discuss uh, what moderate changes could have been made. It's obviously a hypothetical, but yeah. Well, it, it's a real good question. You know, first off, I don't think Kendall Jenner was was even remotely the issue here. Um, I don't think they, you know, I don't think it was a great idea to show her in a blonde wig mm. because uh, you know people out there that are familiar with the you know with the Kardashians, you know, tend to tend to have this this image of them associated with perfection on the one hand in Mm. in terms of appearance, but also, you know, plastic surgery and, you know, some would, some would even say fakeness, Mm. I guess. So I don't know that the blonde wig was, was a very good idea. Clearly there was something about the ad starring Kendall Jenner that rubbed people the wrong way. Research shows people didn't take to a beautiful, well-off person easily and seamlessly solving a serious and difficult issue. Regardless, Professor Taylor's research shows something interesting. Given that, that, that there was a 50 to 26 like dislike margin, it really does suggest that with some tweaks that this, that this ad um, could have worked. Former editor-in-chief of People magazine, Larry Hackett, spoke to Professor Taylor's point through a historical lens. 
Ironically, in 1971, there was the famous Coke ad. I want to teach, you know, I like to teach the yeah. world to sing, yeah. right? That took place, though, on a hilltop with, you know, very, very attractive young people singing a song. It may have been insipid, but it was in a world that was craving a kind of separation from all the tumult of the 1960s. And it wasn't really engaging with all the elements out there. It was referring to them, but not directly. That worked. It was a perfect element and a perfect commercial for its time. Ed Castillo thinks there were ways to make the commercial work both with Kendall and without. The problem is Kendall's not credible in that role. And they missed a huge opportunity. And rather than criticize it, what I, I think is important for people to realize is Kendall Jenner at the time had a Twitter following larger than the population of Germany. Okay? <laughs> so why put her into a spot, holding a, you know, a poorly written spot with no... I mean, if you're going to make a cultural stand, you can talk about the empire she's built for herself. This is going to resonate with millennials. She, you know, that, that's interesting. Uh, she, she, you know, I'm, I, I'm the last person to criticize Kendall Jenner. She's built herself an empire. Uh, and Pepsi would have been far better served to talk about that and associate themselves with that celebrate than to put her, her in as, as an entrepreneur, to saying. celebrate her as an entrepreneur. I mean, and they've always had a kind of a generational, you know, choice of a new generation. For what it's worth, I thought Ed's idea was excellent. After all, why not celebrate that? Millennials are enamored with entrepreneurs. And if anything, lean into the fact that she's a successful model. Despite calls of nepotism, Anna Wintour has said, in a way, Jenner's chameleon-like abilities remind me of the great Linda Evangelista, in that she can take on all of these different characters. DeRay also agreed. There's plenty of ways Pepsi could have made this work. I'm sure there's a way that Pepsi can like talk about social justice in in a way that doesn't mock it. I don't I don't think that's like a pretty high bar. And I think that um, you know these issues aren't these uh, many of the issues that we're fighting for are not issues of left and right, right? Like it's not it doesn't seem partisan to me to say that every kid should eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It doesn't seem partisan to me to say that like people shouldn't be shot dead in the middle of the streets. Like I, like that, these actually seem like pretty basic concepts. Like if you can, I think if you can tell a story about your products, like making the world better for people and like they actually do that and don't harm the world in the way that they're produced or, or sourced, uh, I think that that's like a net positive. Some have questioned if the reaction to the commercial would have been the same if say Donald Glover, AKA Childish Gambino, had handed the cop that can of Pepsi. Could it have been considered... Powerful and poignant? Imagine, Childish Gambino sings, dances, and marches through the crowd with his trademark swagger. Then he reaches the officer. A moment passes, and he hands the cop a Pepsi, taking in both the weight and importance of the movement with the gesture of peace. Eh, I don't think I buy that, but I see the argument. Before sorting out if there is any way to tell what impact this had on Pepsi, while looking at all of the different moving parts, one of my biggest questions was about data. What role does big data play in all of this? And how in the hell was this thing not focus tested? Said Ed Castillo. I do, however, think that advertising should be tested for red flags. That's the one place I think is, is, a, is an appropriate use of testing and advertising, which is showing people the work before you put it in the world. If for no other reason, just to see how they react, and and, and it gives you some insight on in where to put it and how to put it, right. uh, and had they done that, and I don't know what they did, I I would be amazed if if they tested this thing for red flags and it made it through. And I, I would think two people seeing that spot outside of the team that made it would say, "Wow, guys, this uh, this is going to rub some people the wrong way." 
Swell is a perfect example of a company that does what Dr. Taylor, Mr. Jakeman, and so many others have been talking about. They actually one-up this concept of a company that also does good. Doing good for the world is integral to their business model. Every dollar somebody spends with Swell goes to helping the world on different fronts, renewable energy to clean water and disease eradication. So yes, they have a positive effect globally, but Swell also makes sense from a purely financial standpoint. With our resources diminishing and population growing, these sorts of innovative companies have never been more sought after. So this is my way of saying, before we continue with our story, I think it's worth going to visitswellinvesting.com slash WRH. Do it today for a $50 bonus when you open an account. As they like to say at Swell, invest in progress. When thinking of the long-term effects on Pepsi, you have to be careful not to jump to conclusion. It's easy to say it hurt the brand. However, there is a persuasive argument that in fact, it really didn't do much of anything other than cause outrage and disbelief that soon passed. One way to look at this is to compare the deal between Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Said Ed Castillo. At the risk, this gets a little bit inside baseball-y, but um, I think it's, uh, despite thinking the Nike move was brilliant, I was disheartened when days and weeks after people started posting articles on the growth in sales, because that's the wrong way to think about how a brand works. Brands work in much longer timescales. I'm interested to see where the Nike brand is in five years as a consequence of what they did with Kaepernick. Uh, That's how brands work. Brands are glacial. So what difference, if any, did the commercial make for Pepsi's stock, as best as experts can understand anyway? Professor Taylor studied this. Well, I think because they responded so quickly, I, they they weren't hurt on either stock price or sales. But I think if they, you know, a lot of times it's it, it's a failed response that's that's problematic, and then and then makes things worse and and gets customers worked up as it as it festers. As I continued to research, I felt like I had an understanding of the moving parts that can yield a bad commercial a misinterpretation of data, a company that didn't have someone with enough power to step up and call it off, potentially not using an ad agency as a means of checks and balances, if nothing else, and surely a company president who is an outlier and has pissed people off. But I then started down another path. I began thinking, and this may not be a popular line of thinking, but one thing I was surprised by was just the sheer outrage this commercial caused. I remembered it. I thought it showed bad taste and an insensitivity, but I had no idea about all of the tweets, all of the messages, and all of this outrage. I tracked down a Renaissance woman, Efrat Livni. Efrat lived in Israel while writing for the Jerusalem Report and also in New York City while reporting for ABC News. She's also been a public defender in Florida and worked as an attorney at Google in Silicon Valley. She writes fiction and is a painter and has been featured in the New York Times Sunday Styles. She's also served in the Peace Corps in Senegal. You'd think she's like 500 years old, but I assure you, she's far from it. I say all of this because I came across an article that Pratt wrote. It actually had nothing to do with Kendall Jenner or the Pepsi advertisement. Instead, it was about outrage and how mad we all can get. 
So I think if you start to, um, like, if you examine how you feel when you're uh, getting angry, and it ta- it's, takes a little bit of practice, but if you examine, you might feel that you're getting a bit of a thrill, or there's like a tingle, there's some excitement, and we like to feel emotions. We even like to feel bad emotions, negative emotions. And so it creates kind of a rush, and literally a rush in our bodies. And so we become addicted to this, um, to this feeling. And the more we enjoy anger, even if we don't feel it like the way that we feel joy, we do have a, we, we, we enjoy it in some way. And the more we do it, the more we need it that, you know, because the rush lessens, it's like a drug. It's like any drug. I and mean, all emotions are like that. One of the reasons we take drugs is because they generate the senses more intensely than we have in regular life, right? So this is like it's just a thing. It doesn't matter where your um, where your politics lie or what you believe in. On some level, you will get a rush from seeing somebody who you disagree with, disagreeing with them, lashing out, or watching other people lash out, and so that kind of incentivizes people to be jerks, frankly. I asked Efrat about social media. So I think that because there, there are two reasons why um, anger finds a place on social media and then is popular. It's, and the reason, so first of all, it's easier to be rude when you don't have an actual person in front of you. So being snarky, having snarky responses to things um, is easier on us, just socially easier when the, when people aren't, are just abstractions to you. Um, so that's how social media helps anger become uh, more acceptable. Like you might not respond as rudely to a person sitting across from you at a cafe as you will to, uh, you know, like an avatar. And then because because anger also generates emotion in other people, it means that you get more likes or you get more responses or more retweets or more hearts or whatever it is on whatever platform. And so that then makes it, you know, that incentivizes angry responses or snarky responses. And then the more of those we have and we see, the less they cause us to feel, the less it makes us um, sensitive. And then the whole thing cumulatively is generating a more angry society. And there is evidence of it. It's not just a theory, like the, um, the Pew research from the number of uh, emojis, like angry. So first of all, angry emoji was added to Facebook after, um, like, just in, the, just in recent years. But after the election, its use was much, much higher. And the reason for that is because we've we've become very comfortable with the notion that we are angry and that we have a right to be angry and that anger is a legitimate response. Now, it may well be, but the the question of whether it's like really good for society to be angry like remains to be answered. I realize this comes across as a huge stretch, but I don't think it's that out of order. On April 4th, 2017, the same day the ad premiered on YouTube, there was a chemical weapons attack in Syria by government forces. More than 80 civilians were killed. They were gassed to death. That's outrageous. 
and rehad presidential candidates, not even the one you think I'm about to say, not knowing what was going on. There was this interview with Gary Johnson, who ran as an independent and interviewed on the MSNBC politics show, Morning Joe. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About? Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Have I veered too far off track? Maybe. But my point is, if, if the anger is proven to be more substantial in public discourse as it pertains to the case of Pepsi than what was happening in Syria, could this outrage that we keep seeing be called an epidemic? While I didn't speak to Efrat about Syria, I did speak to her about any kind of outrage epidemic, which at first, I must admit, sounded a bit hyperbolic. It's important to note that in Efrat's article, her sources include a psychiatrist for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, studies from the Pew Research Center, National Bureau of Economic Research, U.S. National Library of Medicine, and National Institutes of Health a study out of the University of Chicago Law School and Harvard University. Additionally, she had sources from the Financial Times to the Washington Post and interviews with everyone from political scientists to sociologists to the authors of a book titled The Outrage Industry. For good measure, she at one point even references the ancient Japanese guide for samurais. With all of this research, all of the studying she has done, could it really be called an epidemic? So the reason why it might be called an epidemic is because because of the cumulative effect. So because we, when we get angry and then we stop um, recognizing it as like an, an exceptional emotion, it becomes a standard emotion. Then our responses change, and the more of, the more of it we see and feel and accept, the more often it is that we respond with rage to things. Um, and then, and then that does, it drives our behavior everywhere. Um, and I think you can see it like, it's really interesting to me because I can see it. I can see it in myself. Like I can see the way that, um, I have to sort of like walk back (laughs) from initial responses. And there's, and it seems to me that when I interact with people, there's a, just a general, like, irritability, like a level of what's acceptable irritability that didn't always seem to be this way. But let's say like we don't take my personal experience of life and we just look at what's happening. I mean, certainly there is road rage. There are more shootings. Um, There is a tendon, there is a deep, deep political divide. There is a reluctance for people to speak with people that they, um, disagree with civilly, uh, like we do see evidence of this anger infecting all of society. And so that's problematic because we need to walk back from that somehow. I, cause I don't know where it goes. You know, I don't know where the next step is. I mean, we can't all always be fighting everything. And so we need to be thinking about it because this is not a sustainable mode. Like uh, just in terms, like you were saying about taxing energy, it does tax your energy and it is exhausting. And and that's part of what makes it satisfying in some senses. Like you feel like you've done something by getting upset at the news, but you haven't done anything besides waste your energy. 
So one of the things um, that I looked at was there's a Harvard paper, paper that looks at how anger affects judgment. And so, you you know, there's evidence, there's scientific evidence that we make worse decisions. Um, we perceive incorrectly when we're in an enraged state. Now, hopefully that's convincing, <laughs> you know, that some reason to rethink your anger, like, it's not, it's one thing to say, like, we shouldn't be upset with each other. It's another thing to understand that you're, that by being upset, you're actually changing what you see. You're not seeing what is happening. You're seeing your emotions. For me, one of the biggest turning points is when I got to the end of Professor Taylor's study on the Pepsi ad. Data suggested something that I really couldn't believe. And, you know, the, you know, the data on tests of this ad suggests that the average person didn't really think it was that bad of an ad. Um, but in a politically polarized environment, um, you know, people on, on both ends of the political spectrum were pretty vocal about this. And it, it, it really shows the power of social media in that a lot of the attention around this ad would have led one to believe that everybody hated it. Professor Taylor added, That's one of the big ironies here um, in that if, um, it, you know, it, it depends on how, how deeply people like or dislike the ad. So, you know, for example, with this ad among young people, you know, 50%, um, there are 18 to 29-year-olds, 50% said that, that it gave them a more positive opinion towards Pepsi, 26% said less positive. And then the remaining 24%, um, you know, were neutral. And if if the negative, if the people who reacted negatively weren't reacting like very negatively, basically there's a valence, you know, issue here. What's the strength of the negative reaction? Professor Taylor added, the research for morning morning consult um, used that used tracking technology where they were getting reactions of Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, Democrats on average like the ad a little bit more than Republicans. But what's, you know, what's interesting is early on in the ad when they're just showing this kind of generic protests, um, Republicans are relatively neutral about the ad and Democrats are kind of positive. And then for, for both, there's a bit of a downtick when Kendall Jenner comes on with a blonde wig and she's, you know, she's doing a modeling shoot, um, you know, in the, in the same city or same street as these protests. And then the, the gap actually gets closed when Kendall Jenner, you know, well, so first she joins the protest and not much change changes with that. And, and, and obviously it's not really much of a protest. Um, but then when she hands the officer the Pepsi, um, the opinions of Republicans trend up. And with Democrats, it's more it, it, it was more static. It didn't, you know, for the average Democrat, that didn't involve like a, you know, a dramatic cliff that it dropped off of, but stayed stayed just relatively stable. And that made me rethink what Brad had said at Adweek. Very rarely are the sort of issues that we faced and Unilever faced only a couple of weeks ago 
um, come from your loyalists. They tend to come from kind of other stakeholders in society. During our more general conversation, Brad brought up a quote he liked. I heard a, a great quote um, not so long ago from um, Jill Picardi, who used to be the editor-in-chief of um, Teen Vogue. He said, always remember that it very, and he was talking about the trolls that come out on social media um, to kind of dump on brands and people when there is an issue. And he said, always remember, your commenters are rarely your customers. Um, and I really, um, I really, kind of, that really struck a chord with me because he's right. A lot of the people who come out, um, the keyboard warriors who come out and attack brands when they make a mistake or when they don't live up to an expectation that perhaps they themselves have set is, is brutal. But when you kind of scratch the surface, it's very, um, in very few instances are they the kind of brand's loyalists. They, they, they tend to be the kind of keyboard warrior pundits who are, um, who are out there and, and, and love to kind of jump on an issue. What I realized is to check myself next time I talk about how bad a commercial is. Because I think Ed made a really good point on why advertising is so difficult. I mean, there's so much work now in behavioral economics, and the, 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 there was a Nobel Prize to someone who introduced this notion of system one and system two thinking, system one being like the, like your knee-jerk reaction, like what you're disposed to, how you're supposed to react. And, and the idea is we very rarely sit and measure and rationally, you know, even it's, what's funny is you would think we do it in things like bank accounts or health insurance. And these are actually the categories where we're, we spend more time picking our seat on the plane than we do uh, what the uh, the layout of our 401k is. Is that true? Which drives, I mean, I, I say that to make a point, I mean, which drives bankers crazy. Bankers are sometimes the worst marketers to market banking services because they're weird. They do things like they use tables and they think about, they rationally think about things, whereas we weird don't. Weird in the best way, though. Weird, well, they think they're, they're the onto something. Because, well, they they know the benefits of, of taking interest seriously, right? right? A lot of people, the people in the world, though, who they're trying to sell to tend not to. Uh, there's a great quote. Now we're really going off the reservation, but I think you'll like this. There's this great quote. Uh, by this uh, physician philosopher, Damasio, that says, we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that sometimes think. You know, I mean, and it's really true. And it's, and it's true. And advertisers, and what's frustrating is the advertising agency world, of course, knows this intuitively. They're driven by that uh, bias. Our clients often tend, are taught, or choose to see consumers as rational beings who you can say, you're going to buy my product because I offer you this, this, and this, when in truth, they might buy your product because their great-great-grandfather once said something about it when you were six years old and has absolutely nothing to do with the product itself. About six months after the Kendall Jenner ad, Brad Jakeman left Pepsi to start his own consulting firm. While Brad was at PepsiCo, the stock price increased by over 80%. Obviously, it's not like Brad is solely responsible, but he was there at the company in a big way. He oversaw huge growth, which is widely reported. And what I found most interesting, he really helped PepsiCo develop their water business. In less than 12 months, Aquafina became the number one packaged water brand in the world. If you want to join me in a quick conspiracy theory, let's go down a two-minute rabbit hole here. 
It comes from my rookie research assistant and actor, Alex Pepper. He looked at me last weekend and said, what if, what if this was all a setup? Alex continued with some version of, if you can possibly intentionally create an outrageous campaign that you know will spark outrage and spend time pre-planning your apology, you can, in a way, hijack outrage culture to benefit your brand by increasing visibility via social media and standard media. Because Brad is so smart, did he know this ahead of time? Follow this line of thinking. Part A, Brad Jakeman believes that brands need to stand for something, and that is what young marketers are looking to do. Part B, Jakeman believes that relevancy and controversy are correlated. If you add A and B, the question is, was Kendall used as a pawn, knowing that using her as the face of this social stand would lead to relevance and controversy? To take it to the next level, is it possible that Brad then created a market for himself, caused controversy, handled it perfectly, then left and decided to help other companies handle controversy as well? After all, he said when he consults with other companies these days, he tells them, I'm spending a lot of time with brands that ask me the question, how do we avoid some kind of negative backlash? The answer to that question is, in a lot of times, you simply can't. So get ready for it. Obviously, you don't want to have some form of negative blowback, but the chances are that you are going to, and it's more to do with how you manage it than, than uh, avoiding it altogether. I think rookie research assistant Alex has nothing more than a baseless conspiracy, but I do give him creativity points. Ultimately, Brad will be just fine. While insiders whispered he was asked to leave the beverage company, I don't buy it. His new venture has taken off, and his very first client was Pepsi. Also, Brad seems to live by that Teddy Roosevelt quote that had such an impact on the great Andrew Stanton. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. I don't really drink a lot of soda, and if I do, I like orange soda. I will say this. I feel more inclined to drink a Pepsi than a Coke after watching the commercial. And to be clear, I've watched it now like a million times, but I'm not kidding. The imagery does make it look tasty. The can is a spotless blue, perfect for a hot summer day. It's also soaked in sultry ice water. It's oozing freshness. I want Pepsi. My educated and stripped-down opinion? In the end, Pepsi drinkers didn't really have much of an opinion. Any switch is within the margin of error. They kept drinking Pepsi. Kendall was put in a bad spot, an easy way to get called out. Not to mention, Pepsi's intention was clearly good and stemmed from protests we were seeing that at least younger generations haven't experienced before. But, and this I realized kind of late in the game, did a bunch of young people on social media the Pepsi demographic, have the reaction I now have? Did they say insensitive ad, but that Pepsi does look good? How many watched and subconsciously now wanted a Pepsi or got Pepsi that next time they were at a diner? We know that millions of people were talking about Pepsi. Plenty saw it trending on Twitter, not knowing why. It's the oldest debate in the book. Is all press good press? I think when the bad press has a visual element that is the main cell and does look good, that can of Pepsi, then, I don't know, is it bad press? Regardless, 
Brad told me that it's not necessarily about what the company sells, but what a company stands for. The professor, Dr. Taylor, said, I think the jury's still out a little bit, but something some that's going to be interesting, Andrew, for me to see in this year's Super Bowl is whether, you know, whether this trend will continue where, you know, la- last year we went up to like a, a quarter to a third of the ads having some explicit social responsibility. Most past Super Bowls, it would only be like two, three, four ads. After that night in Los Angeles, with my crew and people who had been in the documentary, and of course Rihanna, people haven't exactly been stopping me on the street about the documentary. Hey man, I love that movie, it's not over. Nope, haven't really gotten that. It wasn't controversial. If anything, Brad may say it's irrelevant. But irrelevant to who is my question. Irrelevant to the mainstream press? To Twitter and celebrities talking about it? Maybe. But to people impacted by the disease, to people who are already committed MAC cosmetics buyers and want to see proof that the brand puts their money where their mouth is, I'd argue in that department, it was highly relevant. Relevance, I think, is a trickier word now more than ever before. Brad probably would agree with Steve Jobs' quote, create relevance, not awareness. I don't disagree, but I'd also consider a quote from sales guru Jonathan Lister. Speak to your audience in their language about what's in their heart. Finally, and I do actually mean finally, I want to give Efrat the final word. She speaks about how to look at all of this through a wider lens. The brain is uh, like it's a machine that's predicting what you're going to see in advance. And when you're seeing everything through the lens of rage, you are changing, literally changing the world around you. You're changing your perception of the world and therefore your interaction with the world. And that will dictate not only how you understand the world, but who you are in the world and your effect on other people. She added, it's the times where you don't react um, that are really as important as the things that you do react to. I don't think we shouldn't talk about things. I definitely think we should talk about things. But the question is, can you talk about them from a place of, um, it's not even facts, but like what you were saying, like some sort of reasonable position as opposed to speaking about them emotionally. And it's true, some things are emotional um, and that should drive your actions, but the anger itself is not, um, it, it can be a fuel, but you still need to be able to um, to sort of to manipulate it, like to take a distance from it and then use it in some way. And so I think that's maybe, that might be the difference. Like, it's not like no anger is justified. There's plenty to be angry about. But what you do with anger is makes a big difference. And we have plenty of examples of this, right? Martin Luther King, Gandhi, whatever. There are people who have responded to injustice and they've responded with They've t- used their that injustice to fuel their actions, but they haven't used it to to be divisive per se. And I think that that's an important distinction. What I've learned more than anything is the ways to use outrage efficiently. Because if you can, then the story has a chance at ending on an uplifting note. Otherwise, people and corporate titans will be left scratching their heads, wondering what really happened.
Next time on What Really Happened, when we come back from the holidays and you've had a chance to binge on any episodes you haven't listened to, is the leader of the free world a quiet German? Chancellor Angela Merkel, now in her third term as the leader of Germany, is the most powerful woman in the world. The only world leader Donald Trump has met but wouldn't shake hands with. The only world leader who has walked up to Vladimir Putin and told him off. But she didn't even win her first election to become chancellor. It was a tie. What really happened? <laughs>